Well, first of all, I'm not going to be offended by this huge void right here. I don't know what that is. Thank you to the dams and, and Joseph who came into that space. It was worrying me as I came down. I wondered if it meant something, but I, it probably doesn't. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, for, for Christians, love, the word love rolls right off the tongue, doesn't it? But that doesn't mean we're always fluent in expressing it and expressing the love that we so easily talk about. Love is mentioned nearly 200 times in the New Testament, most of which comes from Jesus himself. So we know it's what we're supposed to be about, or at the very least, talk about a lot. And there's a chance that right now, you know, you're thinking, yes, of course, we know this. We know it so well that talking about it is kind of boring by now. Jesus loves me, this I know, also I'm supposed to love other people. Christianity 101, now say something interesting. Well, let me ask an interesting question. When we say love, what do we mean? And do I mean the same thing that you do when we say love? When Jesus says in John 13, love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. What does he mean? How has he loved them? And so then, what do people who truly love one another do? That's what I want to talk about. Apparently, they do hard things, even really hard things. They do humbling things. This agape love, as Jesus defined it, and this mandatum of love to which he called his disciples, it comes on the occasion of a meal, with Jesus taking the job of the lowest servant in the household. To prepare them all for this meal, he does what? He cleans the mud and the soot and, yes, the poop off of 24 feet. And out of the middle of 120 toes, give or take, we don't know for sure that all of them had their toes intact. That is not something that's in the tradition that we know about, but let's just assume there were 120 toes, and 10 of those included Judas. Jesus washed them. He shares with them a last Passover meal, which he transformed into this sacred and timeless participation in his sacrifice for them. And he said, do this and do it again, and do it again. And he becomes the food for this. He becomes a sign of the communion that they have with him and with one another. And the command follows this. Love the way I've loved you. This agape love and the call also comes not long before he pours his heart out for four chapters as we uh, distinguish them. Four chapters of deep, deep encouragement and instruction and blessing and prayer. He pours his heart out, and not long before every one of them abandons him in fear. So this hard and humbling agape, I think this love is like breathing. And there's some interesting stuff in the Word, but I want you to just think about this metaphor for a minute. This love is like breathing, or more specifically, agape love is what breathing is to moving. The more demanding the movement, the more you have to move, the, the more the, the, you, you work or run or lift or climb, the harder it is to breathe, right? And some of you are like, yes, absolutely, amen. The harder it is. And yet, the harder the movement, the harder you must breathe so that you can move. And in the same way, the harder life or relationship or fellowship becomes, the harder it is to love. And yet, the harder we must love for it to work, for it to matter. 
And I mentioned this word, curiously, the word agape draws on two ancient root words here, agon and agab, which were sort of packed into the meaning. Agon means much, it's a lot. And agab paints a word picture of, guess what? Breathing. Think effort. Much effort. So the word agape is also, at times, translated in the Scripture's heart. Now, with modern Western ears and plenty of Valentine's cards in your history, you might be thinking that this heart means feelings. But heart didn't mean feelings in the ancient Near East. Feelings in the ancient Near East were in the belly, in the gut. The heart had more to do with the will. It meant the kind of value and determination and intention and commitment that flow out into life in the form of choices and action and even discipline, regularity, labor and servanthood and sacrifice. This is the heart. This is agape love. The agape heart of God is not his warm fuzzies. Divine agape is his fiery determination, his relentless will to secure the adoption, to secure the salvation of those for whom he has destined it and to those whom he has promised it, even to the point of emptying himself. Now, don't worry. I have absolutely no doubt that God has all the feels for us. He does. It's all in there in the scriptures. But Jesus doesn't wash feet because of the feelings, rich as they are. Jesus washes feet because of the facts. These are the ones whom my Father has given me. He's given them to me to love and to serve and to save them. All the way to my cross. So the nature of this love becomes all the more clear, friends, when it's hardest. When it's humbling. That's why I think love is a very interesting topic. It's one we have to keep talking about in the church, because it's easy to forget or to fudge what love really is. We all have personal definitions, we all have personal expectations of love, of what it does and does not look like and feel like, and I think this is shaped by our own stories, certainly it is, by our own nature and nurture, right? My father was one of the most affectionate people that I have ever known. He kissed me and my brother on the mouth until we were 11, and it wasn't weird. When he was around, he constantly told me he loved me, and then he'd ask me if I knew it. And I'd say, yeah, Dad, of course. His smile was like checkered neon. He laughed loudly and easily, and he radiated with playfulness in the presence of his sons and his nieces and his nephews and other people's sons and other people's nieces and nephews. He complimented. He encouraged all the time. He was the favorite uncle. He was the dad my friends wished they had. If affection and affirmation were like the root notes of love, then my dad was a virtuoso. He played them well. But if love is about doing hard and humbling things, my dad rarely lifted a finger for it. He certainly never exhausted himself for it. My dad could just sob bitter tears of apology and pull on my heart till it felt like it was going to explode through my ribcage. But he loved me in all the ways that came easily for him. He really did. Not when it was hard. He dodged the hard stuff. As families and communities go, these are often just the mundane things, the boring things done faithfully and unceremoniously over time. That makes them hard. 
He held no space for that. And I've learned to make sense of him and actually to humanize my dad. So I imagine he might have wanted better than that if he knew better than that. Maybe if he had experienced better than that. And as it happens, I learned something that he didn't intend to teach me. That words are often just that in the end. Even the sincere ones that ride through a neon smile or with an affectionate touch. I internalize the feeling that conversely, love is about showing up, about providing, about solving problems and bearing burdens and helping out when things are hard and when things are sad and when words and gifts be damned. More like my mom, I suppose. More modestly affectionate, a bit guarded. The affection I remember most and cherish most from my mom is when she'd just be sitting on the couch with me and pull her feet up, and she put one foot on me. That's how my mom really showed affection. She was always there to my great comfort and encouragement. So I learned in some ways that my affection and even my playfulness and my tears are really only as good as these other ways that I support those I love. There's a balance. It's all good. And I can't tell you I've always found it, that I always find it. That's never easy to find the balance. But I hope the people I love know I do, imperfectly, of course. And I hope that's true of you. What about your story? What does love mean to you? It's important to ask. And really just my larger point is this, that love is kind of liquid, right? It's, we're all trying to understand, we're all trying to live out the kind of love Jesus is calling us to within our own stories. We're all trying to grow up into love because if we're paying attention at all, love, agape love, for what it really is, is just rarely easy. And guess what? Jesus placed this command, this mandatum, this call to love in what has proven to be a uniquely challenging place to live it out. Look around. It's the church. The community where water is thicker than blood. And our differences are exaggerated not only by our proximity to one another, but also by the intensity of our enlarged expectations. It's the church. We're kind of supposed to be perfect to one another. We talk about love all the time, but we're not fluent in showing it all the time. And so it dashes our hopes and our expectations. It, it makes it very difficult to find the chemistry of love that Jesus is calling for. Certainly the Christian faith means a call to love our neighbors and love all, let's say, beyond the church. But this John 13 call and its consequences, they live first inside the community of faith. They have a vital purpose. Now, on the one hand, when we think about this and we think about following Christ, we think about being a part of the church, we think about Christianity, we are still children of romanticism. And so what that means we, is we often reinterpret the Christian faith as an individual spirituality, right? And Christian love is kind of this fairy dust that each of us can sprinkle through society, you know, as we sort of imagine who Jesus is, church or no church. But conversely, and in what Jesus is saying here, he puts his new people in the closest proximity of body and mind and spirit. A new family of new shared blood, whose first and most fundamental call, as the shadow of his cross is lengthening in this moment, is to be together. Figure it out. To do the hard and humbling things. And on the other hand, some of us have not been loved well by the church, to put it mildly. Some of you might 
be just warming to the idea or warming to it again that being a part of a church can be a good thing. And I get it, I really do. I have been cut to the bone by people in the church. Mistreated by leaders, lied to, gossiped about, and undermined. But I've been incredibly blessed by the church, by you. I've been blessed by the way you bless one another. There's nothing like the church. It's not perfect. But the blessings are huge. Is the life of the sincere, go-it-alone disciple safer? In some ways, yes, it absolutely is. Have intrusions of other values, and let's be honest, sin into the life of the church often made it really hard to live in this community that we're called to be? Yes, perennially. Sometimes devastatingly for some people. But has the mandatum, the command changed? It can't. No, it won't. In the end, the church is the people. They're to love you, and you're to love them. As Cyprian, a bishop, said in the third century, no one can love the head and hate the body. Friends, I believe that our relational dignity, who we are and are meant to be, our spiritual health, the healing that awaits us, these are directly related to our own individual expression of love, the work of loving others as they are to our being loved by others. They're just as that important. Your agape love is necessary too. It's what you're made for. Even if that's hard to imagine right now. Jesus cares about your soul and your sanctification too. And I believe a big part of our healing from being unloved actually comes by loving. By having the relationship rebuilt and by actually realizing we have our part to do in that. It's empowering. It happens in the community that Jesus gathers, warts and all. That's our purpose, Jesus is saying. And he's clear in verse 35 when he says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. There is actually intrinsic purpose right here in giving our time and our energy and our resources to one another. Why? Because we matter to God and we should matter to each other. But there's also this, this important and profound extrinsic purpose in this love, and that's our witness to the world. It's not the expectation of perfection, but of effort for sure. That it matters to us. And that difference matters, and that witness matters. So if agape love is so hard and humbling, then how is it even possible? It's because Jesus didn't merely provide an example of love. And I have no use for the idea that Jesus is a great moral example, because God knows none of us can live up to that. Jesus gave them and us a well from which to draw. It might just be explicit, actually, in the Greek here in verse 34. Many grammarians you know, of the scriptures and commentators have actually said Jesus' words here are better interpreted. Have a love for one another from my love. The word kathos can mean as you've experienced it, experienced, but it also means from the experience of my love, love one another. In other words, his heart for us is the well of our heart for each other. The well of being loved is not merely an idea that we can hope to access, but it's a spiritual power that we are meant to receive and to express. It's a new identity we're meant to internalize. People with filthy feet do not repulse a holy God. 
but are instead washed by His own hands. Paul calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of adoption, who has drawn us to the love of the Father and reminds us how profoundly loved we are as children of God and not units of religious or moral production. And in saying that, we're not earning anything by loving one another. You can't earn what you've been given. We're responding to His grace. We're embodying His mercy. We're reflecting His generosity. We get to participate in His patience. Or not. And just remember this. The basic difference between legalism, you know, when you hear us talk about what we're called to do and should do and even must do, the difference between legalism and obedience is actually why you do it. Why we do it. If our effort is actually bent toward earning favor or avoiding punishment, it's legalism. If our effort is bent toward maximizing love for God and others, it's obedience. That's an important difference for us. There are still imperatives. But why do we do them? Our love, our effort must always begin in the love of Christ for us and for his people. We love because we are beloved. There's a security, there's an assurance in that. And it's not always easy to internalize that assurance, is it? Think about Peter. I think about Peter all the time. The fact that Peter's in there gives me a lot of hope. Not only did he initially resist having his feet washed, but he also wanted Jesus to know what he was willing to do for him. There are two interesting occasions right here in, in John's Gospel, right? He doesn't, no, don't wash my feet, never, Lord, I'll, I'll wash yours. Jesus says, no, I must do this for you. After our Gospel reading today, beginning in verse 36, Peter says, Lord, where are you going? So he sort of skips past the love one another as I've loved you. He, Jesus had said, I'm going away. You can't come where I'm going. Peter's like, I want to go there. Where are you going? And Jesus replies, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Not good enough. Peter retorts, Lord, why can I not follow you now? Hear the dynamics of this conversation. I will lay down my life for you. Think about that. Jesus responds, will you really? Will you really lay down your life for me? And it's a dagger, right? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. <sighs> right? Dagger. It hasn't nearly sunk in for Peter, has it? He's still trying to be known for what he will do for Jesus. For laying down his life. For his work. For his imagined strength and loyalty. But it's not enough. It never is. The strength that Peter will need to follow when it's hard and when it's humbling, especially as a leader, it must come from Jesus, from what Jesus is going to do for him, lay down his life for him. This remains true for us, as competent and faithful as we think we are. Because things might change where that's concerned. Storms may come and the waters may rise. And then what are we depending on to be loving? People are going to be people, too. And so I think two qualifications for clarity as I sort of wrap this up could be helpful. <laughs> the goal of Christian love is not to become the kind of person for whom love is easier. To change your personality or your disposition. That's, let's be honest, some of you have lived a long time and you know that ain't about to happen. I've lived 46 years and I'm like, probably not. 
But here's the good news. The goal of the Christian life, I think, where love is concerned is to learn to love the next person the next time and to seek reconciliation when we fail to do it. Drawing on what 1 Corinthians 13 tells us love is, which we like to read in weddings, which I'm doing one at 5 p.m. today, the goal is to choose patience. It's not a kind of person. It's to choose, to, to the, it's the effort to be patient and to be kind and forgiving when irritability or resentment feel not only like my reasonable response to what's going on, but actually my rights. Second qualification. The goal is also not to become the kind of person who thinks that people are just amazing. Because let's be honest, they aren't always. It might never happen. If you live in reality long enough that all of a sudden you finally just feel tons better about people. Most people are only great some of the time. No one is great all the time. There might be some people who are great never. (laughs) It's not true. But here's the thing, the way it seems to work, even that, that one time that this otherwise amazing person is not so great, it tends to be what sticks in our crawl, right? It's what we struggle with, right? Especially, I mean, the margin for error is really small, and it's getting smaller in our society today. Don't mess up. Don't let somebody down. That might be true in our society, but we're another society, Jesus is saying. Our goal is to love people because they're loved, not because we like them. And we're better at liking them. Friends, today you're going to come down here, as we always do, and open your hands again, and you're going to receive the love of Jesus that you can touch and taste. But you will not be alone. Alone is not how it began or how it's ever worked. You will be surrounded by other open hands and filthy feet, so to speak. You are not coming to take your dose of your Jesus. You are coming to receive our Jesus together. You're coming to remember that the caked-on excrement of sin and ignorance, it cannot remain between us because it cannot remain between us and our God, where the lavish love of Christ is being poured out and shared and washing us and inviting us. This Thanksgiving meal is uniting you to Christ and so you to one another. It's this remembrance that returns us not only to the assurance of our belovedness, but to our high calling to love one another and thus to make the love of Jesus known and visible. Imperfectly, as I say, but persistently. So when you open your hands today at this table, or maybe when you come for just a blessing, I want to encourage you to ask the Lord. Ask the Lord to make This hard-won reconciliation, his hard work for us, his hard-given love, ask him to make it the well from which you're drawing today. For you and for those to whom he is giving you today and in the days to come as he continues to meet us when we gather in his name. So will you do that? Yeah, Lord, help us to open our hands with expectation today that you will make us more, just more harmonized in our hearts and our minds with the love you've poured out for us, for your beloved. We pray that you help us to see with your eyes, to feel with your gut, 
to work with your heart. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.